Returning to our program after a long hiatus is our special aviation correspondent, First Officer Vladimir Zaravika. Hi, Doug. It's nice to be here. As we air today, yesterday marked 100 years post Wilbur and Orville, Kitty Hawk. We sure have come a long way, haven't we? <laughs> well, I want you to talk about that a little bit. Um, just what that 100 years has meant. Some months back, Vlado, we talked about uh, who really could claim to be the father or fathers of flight, and you were quite an advocate for the Wright Brothers of Ohio. Yes, I am, and, and still continue to do so to this day. And I think, of course, this is their big day. December 17th, 1903 was when they made not one but four flights. And we were talking before the show about how that's kind of an important distinction. That is a distinction. As uh, uh, scientists will tell you, the, one of the important things of a, an experiment is, is its repeatability. Yeah. And all of the other claims to having had the first flight, uh, either the French or uh, New Zealanders or some other Americans, they were not able to continue to uh, sustain the experiment and do it over and over again, whilst the Wright brothers did it four times on that very day. Right. And the first flight is the one they commemorate of 120 feet, but... I think you and I agree that what's really significant is that it was the fourth flight that day, progressively longer flights, that was a sixth of a mile that says, yes, we're reproducing this. We got this down. Correct. Correct. In fact, interestingly enough, just this morning, I downloaded a a small simulator of the Wright Flyer Uh uh, on my computer, and I did the exact same thing that the Wright brothers did on the very first attempt which I believe was a Wilbur had tried, not on the 17th, but the, on the 14th of December. Wilbur uh, pulled back on the stick too hard, lifted the nose up, installed the aircraft, and it took him three days to repair it, oh. and then do, it, do the flight on the 17th. Well, I did the exact same thing on the simulator this morning. It's very touchy, and the nose of the right flyer came up and came crashing down. I, I gather it wasn't a good airplane. It just was the first valid airplane. It was just the first valid airplane. Okay. Yes. Difficult yes. to fly. Even on a simulator, yes. Well, let's go over a bit about some of the other claimants to the uh, the throne for uh, the father of the airplane, because it's come up, as, as NPR and other people have talked about this 100th year anniversary. Uh, a lot of folks have come forward to say, hey, it was my great uncle Richard Pierce that f- first flew back in New Zealand, etc. Yeah, right. <laughs> now, my understanding is Pierce did get a plane into the air, a bamboo-constructed uh, aircraft of sorts into the air several months before the Wright brothers, but he crashed into a hedge and never flew again. And I'm uh, a little unfamiliar with that. Was it uh, self-powered or was it a glider? Oh, it was No, it was a powered... He actually got an, air, an, an engine on board, I believe. And he flew into a hedge. Yes. Crashed into a hedge. I could do that with my car and it's still not an aircraft. <laughs> If we're going to take these types of claims, then we need to go all the way back, as we mentioned earlier, to Icarus and uh, Danelaus as having been the first individuals to have flown, and it was documented. Yes, yes. Well, uh, apparently Clement Adair was a Frenchman who, after the Wrights flew, said, hey, hey, I did that. I flew back in 1890 with a steam-powered aircraft. Not too many witnesses, but uh, I did it. A steam-powered aircraft. I, I, I don't know how he... I don't know... That, that it, on the face of it sounds rather preposterous, and steam engines are incredibly heavy. The, the Wright brothers had two uh, big technical hurdles. One of them was uh, the airfoil, which they uh, worked on in one of the, if, I believe it was the very first wind tunnel that they constructed themselves. The second uh, hurdle that they had was getting a power plant, an engine, that was light enough yet strong enough to 
be flown on the aircraft and produce enough power to uh, to get the aircraft going. I can't imagine a steam-powered contraption being able to lift anything of that nature. And it would be uh, really interesting to see some of the uh, plans that the uh, Frenchman allegedly has um, for his steam-powered aircraft. And they don't say it flew very well or that it was very controllable, but they, they're trying to claim later, well, he got into the air. Maybe he hopped off the ground. I don't know. Hopping doesn't count. Four <laughs> sustained flights in one day. They were the first. Well, since I, 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 I don't want to go two directions at once, um, I want to talk about the breakthroughs that the Wright brothers made because that is a fascinating uh, um, explanation of their success. But let's just talk about a couple other pretenders to the throne first. Um, Certainly, for entertainment purposes only. Um, uh, Alberto Santos Dumont. When you go to Rio de Janeiro, which I did there last summer, the Santos Dumont Airport is named after what the, who Brazilians consider to be the father of aviation. Now, Dumont apparently did fly, but by everyone's account, is um, a, a reasonable aircraft that that met all the criteria that you know for a modern aircraft. But he did so in like 1906, and the reason that this was recognized as the you know the first flight was that people were not aware of what the Wrights had been accomplishing. This is true, and also uh, Santos Dumont. I believe he gets the first uh, publicly viewed flight yes. by a crowd instead of yes. just a, a, a small boy and some uh, lifeguards. <laughs> and But uh, as you mentioned, the, the Wright brothers being extremely wary, and rightfully so, of uh, patent infringements, uh, kept uh, their accomplishments secret from the public, however, still fully documented with uh, pictures. One of right. the most famous aviation pictures that, that we have of all time is of the, that uh, day. Yes, which I find that curious. They actually took, the, they were sensible enough to actually photograph that day in Kitty Hawk, so the pictures do exist of them taking off. But even Scientific American, December 2003, uh, somewhat somewhat defensively talking about how, well, you know, of course we didn't know that the Wright Brothers, that they were just so damn secretive. And uh, the Wright brother, the um, the Scientific American, and particularly the Smithsonian Institute, took a lot of grief for the fact that they did not recognize the rights. And um, and speaking of the Smithsonian, let's address the issue of Samuel Pierpont Langley. Oh, all right. The secretary of the Smithsonian Institute, who was also intent upon becoming the world's first aviator with a powered aircraft, and he actually succeeded succeeded in creating the first powered aircraft that flew, but it didn't have a man on board. First powered drone, if, okay. if you will. All right. The father of the drone <laughs> is undisputable. <laughs> but uh, he went to build an aircraft with a man on board and apparently tried to launch off of the uh, of a houseboat on the Potomac River some months before the, uh, the rights and crashed. It flew straight into the river. Uh, I guess it was actually a few days before the rights, they, this, this catapult failed. Yeah, that was another thing, uh, that uh, Langley's uh, so-called aircraft was catapulted off of a, a ship on the Potomac. Now, although catapults in aviation, as far as the Navy is concerned, is, is uh, uh, necessary and impressive, however, it's still not truly the first powered aircraft flight, as was the Wright brothers. Yeah, the Wrights actually wound up using catapults as well because they are sort of an effective way to help you get into the air. But it wasn't necessary. At one point. Yeah. This is true. They did so in their experimentation. On that very first day, the aircraft powered itself into the air. 
let's talk a bit about uh, what led to the Wright brothers' success. Uh, um, Scientific American points out that it's not true that uh, that the Wright brothers were these crazy inventors that everybody said, oh, you know, well, no one will ever fly. And uh, they actually, there were people that knew that eventually we'd be able to do it. Although, I understand you actually looked up some, some notable quotes of people predicting failure. One, one quote was from a mathematics professor at John Hopkins University, a contemporary of theirs at the time. His name is uh, Simon Newcomb, who said that a powered flight is unpractical and insignificant, if not utterly impossible. <laughs> yeah. But we should uh, we should also point out that we, as Americans, perhaps focus in on the success of the boys from Ohio, but that powered flight through Zeppelins was pretty much a going concern by that time. This is true. Uh, if we were to speak completely technically correctly, it would be the first powered heavier-than-air craft. Yes. The and modern airplane, because the, let's face it, the Zeppelin and the blimp have, have always found limited uses. This is true. This is one of the the reasons for the limited uses is uh, the speed. Yeah, they're slow. And the uh, the Wright brothers broke their own first uh, uh, speed record, if you will. Their very first aircraft sale was to the U.S. Army, and actually received a five thousand dollar bonus because the aircraft flew uh, five miles an hour faster than what the uh, Army had expected and intended it to do. Right. Right. So from the get-go in aviation, speed was of importance. And from the get-go, the, the, the main application of the airplane was in warfare. But let's come to that in a second. Okay. Um, the Wright brothers had several problems to solve. You had to basically get an airfoil, something that would lift, get you in the air. Now, apparently uh, Otto Lilienthal and others had, uh, had developed pretty first-class gliders. Yes, they had. It had been flying them for, uh, I think, Lilenthal flew 2,000 different yeah, uh, a lot uh, flights. of flights. And in, in uh, the book about the Wright brothers uh, called The Bishop's Boys, it, uh, they in, their, in the book state themselves that they, for the most part, did not come up with anything new. They were, in a way, more scientific in their approach, where they gathered as much data as they could of the work of others, compiled it together did their own experiments, both uh, theoretical and practical, in building the uh, the wind tunnel for both the airfoil and the propeller, which is Which, which is, is fairly airfoil. significant, though. I mean, it, what, what genius it was to decide, we, we have a small model, will it fly? Well, let's test it by, by running air over the surfaces of this model. Indeed, indeed. And their genius may have been in using the work of others to make the whole greater than the sum of the individual parts. I don't know whether you caught this, uh, on, it was on NPR and on Nova, but apparently aeronautics historian Tom Crouch has really gotten into how the boys did it, and uh, he's written a book. He actually is the author of the book you cited, The Bishop's Boys, mm-hmm. and uh, Crouch was fascinating when I heard him on, on NPR. I just couldn't, I just, I had to like, had an assignment, I had to like stop and listen before I did what I wanted to do, because it was so intriguing. He's describing Wilbur or Orville or someone on a bicycle, because they were bicycle manufacturers, you know, driving around with a little gauge, measuring how much lift they got off of a wing and deciding, you know, we have to do something about this because the numbers we've been given by other pioneers before us is just not, it's not accurate. Yeah, this is true. They, they, they took the information that was already out there, experimented with it, and came up to, with their own conclusions. That's, uh, is that not the defin or a definition of engineering? Yeah. Well, Michael Hart, a book we love to cite on this program, the, uh, the 100, a ranking of the most influential persons in history, and we're going to have Dr. Hart on the show in the months to come. Uh, he 
of course, tried to assess who made the biggest difference throughout the course of history, and he ranked the rights pretty high, 28. He considered them as one unit because it was hard to say where one stopped and the other began, but he said how high you rank them pretty much depends on how high you rank aviation because these guys clearly are the key figures to modern aviation. But Hart cites in the book that um, these guys were so good that they actually took props and built the world's best props. To they pr- did. Hand-carved them. Yes. Because the props were trial and error affairs, and they trial and error until they got it right. Still considered to be very good props this many years later, 100 years later. Yes, yes, they are. Um, in fact, that that in itself is, is just achievement in woodsmanship, if you will. Yeah. Because the propeller needs to be nearly perfectly balanced. And to hand-carve a propeller to make it perfectly balanced and still work on the aircraft without having any uh, type of template or design previously is uh, amazing in and of itself. I hadn't even thought about that till you you say. I mean, the the hand carving a prop and getting it right? That's why I'm the aviation expert (laughs) on the show. Yes, you are. But but um, the even probably even more remarkable example that that Hart cites, and and I think that uh, Mr. uh, or is it maybe Dr. Crouch cites, is that the power plants they wanted to use just didn't quite have enough oomph. So the boys sat down and built an engine that had a better power to weight ratio than anything else available. Indeed they did. Which is, I mean, that's just an, a side issue of a problem they had to solve and, and they did it. They did. And, and now the, uh, if you think of the modern aircraft, it's uh, so specialized that you've got engine engineers, you've got uh, airfoil engineers, you've got aerodynamic engineers. Uh, the Wright brothers were all of this in one using very, very limited uh, previous data. Yeah. Therein lies their true genius, and therein lies the fact that they should get full credit for this. <laughs> well, in, I, I'm, I'm not arguing. But I guess I guess they used it. Was it an alloy? I mean, I'm still sort of fascinated by the fact that they have a 1903 internal combustion engine. They're thinking, we can use one of these things to fly an airplane. And not only that, they came up with a, uh, a belt gearing mechanism where the the engine camshaft spinning spun two propellers simultaneously clever boys that they were i don't believe they actually graduated high school i i don't remember from from reading the book whether they they had or not but uh, they they truly were uh, geniuses so i guess um in the wake of 1903 the wright brothers get a little paranoid with good reason about possible uh, infringements of what they've accomplished so they're a little secretive but by 1908 other claimants are coming along santos dumont apparently um i guess glenn curtis wins a prize can somebody fly an airplane a certain amount of time and certain distance whatever it was and curtis comes out and does it and the Wrights just bypass the competition because they know they can do it and they're, they're looking forward beyond that one of their goals was to uh sell their aircraft uh, to the U.S. military. And part of the reasons that, uh, one of the reasons that this took so long to do was the Wright brothers' secrecy and the U.S. military having had a bad experience with too many flaky inventors and claims and promises. So it took a while for the Wright brothers and the uh, army to get together on what is expected, what, what they want, and whether this could happen at all. And that was the first purchaser of an aircraft was the U.S. military. We're speaking today with First Officer Vlado Zaravica, Radio Parallax's aviation special correspondent about the 100th anniversary of the Wright Brothers. 
And I guess ramping up to the, their final, you know, making it by getting a contract with the military, um, it was a bit, of a, a bit of a rough go. The Herald Tribune in 1906 apparently carried an article on the Wright Brothers with a headline, Flyers or Liars? <laughs> Which prompted them to get mad and go over to France and give public demonstrations of what they could do that everybody, everybody just went, oh my God. We're, we're dabbling with airplanes. These guys have a real airplane. They were flying. They were circling. It was a completely controlled flight. Uh, they were achieving altitudes. And uh, I don't think anybody who had seen the Wright Flyer or the Wright Brothers flying had any doubt as to who was the leader in aviation at the time. So uh, obviously they knew it had potential, they knew it might change the world, and they knew money would be made from it. And so did a lot of other people. And of course, as is a great American tradition, no sooner does someone come up with a great idea, but someone else decides he's going to steal it and make a, a quicker buck off of it. Are you talking about Curtis? Well, I wasn't necessarily specifically talking about him, but let's talk about him. Glenn Curtis apparently uh, decided to horn in on some of the patents of the rights, and started building aircraft that was using some of their innovations, and, and he decided not to pay them for the patents they owned. I think that Curtis had a lot to do with this controversy over who flew first because Curtis decided that if Samuel Pierpont Langley's airplane had really worked, well then, what are these Wright brothers trying to claim that they're the fathers of aviation, blah, blah, blah. So he basically built a reproduction of Langley's aircraft, changing 30 things in it to make it more airworthy, flies it and says, see? One of the, the problems there, well, of the many problems there is the phrase would have. <laughs> There's a difference between would have and did. Uh -huh. The Wright brothers did. Mm -hmm. And also, as you mentioned, the, the uh, 30 changes uh, years later, where at, at the explosive pace that aviation was growing and innovations were coming about, even from one Wright flyer to the next, as they improved from aircraft to aircraft in the months, it's... If you use computer terms, it's many generations of software later yeah. that he added these innovations. It would be like uh, adding Windows to an old uh, 1980s computer and saying, <laughs> hey, see, it would have worked there, too. Right. Well, the rights, uh, I guess at least Orville was able to, uh, to, to, to reap quite a financial benefit. I think, he so I think he actually got out of aviation in 1915, sold it out, probably made a million bucks, and, and said... That's enough of this. And he became the grand statesman, if you will, of uh, aviation, served on uh, many uh, think tanks and uh, also government aviation uh, committees. And he also lived long enough to see the jet age come in. And we should mention that actually, sadly, it was Wilbur who was the older brother who originally had the idea for the flying machine. They were basically, I suppose, equal contributors after the fact, but it was originally Wilbur's idea and unfortunately... In a previous era, we didn't have perhaps the medicines uh, and technology for healthcare that we do today. Wilbur contracted typhoid fever and passed away in 1912, which is which is at the age of 45. Very sad. It, it is, and you wonder had his brother lived to the uh, to a ripe old age, and had they decided to stay in aviation instead of uh, basically pulling out, if they could have continued to come up with uh, innovations. Uh, that would have put us now, 100 years later, further along in uh, flight, both in the atmosphere and maybe even in space. Well, I think that perhaps that once, uh, once Wilbur had died, I think Orville, I think, decided he didn't really have the heart to go it alone. I mean, I'm speculating, but it certainly seems reasonable to imagine that by 1915, he didn't have his heart in it like he did before. 
So uh, we, let's come back to that issue that we deferred about the first uh, applications of airplanes, which appears to have been in warfare. Uh, true. It was the Signal Corps that really wanted uh, the aircraft, and one of the reasons was for a, a quicker uh, communication and dispatching. Another one was for observations. And yeah. Fly out where are the troops, they're massed over here, fly back, the, the, the main body of the of your opposition is over Correct. here. Correct. Yeah. Correct. It was basically intelligence gathering and right. dissemination rather than an actual weapon right. of war. So how did we evolve into this Baron uh, Manfred von Richthofen, 80, 80 kills, uh, dogfights, the legendary uh, uh, single combat of World War One? And interestingly enough, the uh, in the First World War, where the uh, aircraft were used, at uh, first they were used just as that, observation platforms. And the pilots, uh, there's even accounts that in the first few days of the war, the pilots are waving at each other from different sides as they're going back and forth across the trenches. Yeah, And then as the... Uh, the legend and myth of aviation, if you will, goes, they started uh, throwing bricks at each other and shooting handguns and shotguns at one another. <laughs> Usually there was the pilot and an observer in those aircraft. Is it true that some guys actually blew their own props off, forgetting the fact that there was a spinning... Uh... Yes, yeah. <laughs> yes. And that was, the, the as far as uh, aircraft of war concerned, the very first hurdle that needed to be... Uh, overcome is uh, how to shoot a gun, a machine gun from an aircraft. And they realized that the easiest thing to do would be to actually point the aircraft as a gun, however the propeller was in the way. And that led to some, some innovations on both sides. And the but shots it, went between the blades. The shots went between the blades, or the first working one was uh, invented by the French where a little metal triangle was placed on the back of the blade where if the bullet would hit the propeller blade as it was spinning the triangle would deflect the blade to the side hmm. so some of the shots were just getting deflected and randomly and some were getting through but it was uh the the germans that came up with the uh braking mechanism where the machine gun would not fire when the propeller was in the way well, in the 20s, in the wake of, uh, of, of disarmament, I guess a lot of these uh, Curtis Jennies, at this point, Glenn Curtis had become you know, quite the aviation uh, uh, mogul, and his biplanes were, I guess, the basis for a whole future generation of... Pilots, flight. barnstormers. And, and trainers of World War II. Yes, yes, they were. And I will give uh, uh, Curtis credit for doing a great deal to romanticize uh, aviation and the fact that he he did produce enough aircraft and he produced produced aircraft that were used as barnstormers and uh, also in early uh, postal mail routes. So one of the earliest forays into commercial aviation instead of military aviation. Well, we we hope to have on this program uh, none other than General Chuck Yeager in the weeks to come. He's uh, his people have uh, have agreed to to, to, to talk to us. I think he'll have some very interesting things to say about uh, aviation from World War II forward. So maybe we'll, uh, well, maybe we'll insert a hiatus at this point and have you come back after we've had the opportunity to talk to, to the general. Certainly. He is a living legend. He's, he is a pioneer in aviation, and I can't wait to hear the show. Let's leapfrog over, um, um, over the X-1 and over World War II to the present time where we see that aviation is a tremendous part of all of our lives. It is indeed. It's, uh, if, if any indication of what uh, life, modern life would be like, 
without aviation, uh, just harken back to the first week or so after uh, the unfortunate tragedy of 9-11, where yes. all of aviation was grounded. Yes. And that that show, fortunately, that was only for a week or so, but uh, it showed how important aviation is at any given point in time. I mean, we so, we so take for granted, and this, this just does blow my mind, we just take for granted that we can pack our bags, get in our car, drive down and, and, and board this cylinder of aluminum that will literally leapfrog over an ocean and deposit us on another continent a half day later. Not only that, but we get extremely irate if there's even the smallest glitch <laughs> in this flight, not realizing that there are literally thousands and thousands of these going on simultaneously. Any closing thoughts about the, this hundred year now, a full century of aviation? Uh, you 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 fly airplanes. You are a professional uh, pilot. Yes, I'm. A, I'm a professional pilot, and as such, one of the things that strikes me is so much has been uh, talked about the Wright brothers' genius in building the first aircraft, and of course that is phenomenal, and I give them full credit. However, little is said about the fact that the fir- for the first maybe even decade or so. They not only built the aircraft, they learned to fly it. They taught themselves to fly it. Right. They were the first pilots. And having been a flight instructor myself for years <laughs> on end, I can't imagine having tried to learn to do that just by trial and error, where the error is quite possibly a fatality. Yes. So th- that that is has to add to their brilliance. Even if, if you give credit to making of the first aircraft to other in- individuals, whoever it may be, the Wright brothers were clearly the first pilots, and they taught themselves. The first flight instructor slash pilots. <laughs> Indeed. We've left out a lot in, in, in our <laughs> We've left out a hundred years worth, haven't we? All right, we got more to say, so come back uh, next year, the early next year, and let's, let's talk more about it, because as you know, you and I both are quite big fans of the subject of aviation. I'd be happy to, Doug. Thanks once again to First Officer Vladimir Zaravika, our special aviation correspondent. Joining us now on the program is our very own aviation correspondent, Vladimir Zaravika. Welcome back, Vlado. Thank you very much for inviting me back. Well, we wanted to talk to you about flying cargo around the world because uh, in one of the incarnations of Radio Parallax, we've been discussing arms traders and arms dealers and things that get flown from point A to point B. And since you do that for a living, we thought you'd be the perfect guy to come in and talk a bit about it. Well, I don't fly arms for a living. I do fly <laughs> cargo for a living all no, over No, I wasn't implying North you were America. flying arms and drugs. <laughs> but cargo, yes. Okay. Sometimes we don't know what's in the back, nor do we care. Well, that then maybe you flew arms and didn't know it. Maybe. But you have flown some oddball things that you did know about, and I thought we would start with some of those. One of the most uh, oddball things that uh, I've uh, flown is uh, $12 million in cash from uh, Miami down to uh, Panama. Uh, Panama uses U.S. currency, and it was a uh, Treasury Department uh, load of cash that we were hauling down to fill their ATMs. So you got a lot of $20 bills, I guess. Well, when we got to the airport in Miami, we were uh, notified that there was going to be a large cash shipment on down. And uh, uh, as we were waiting for the uh, the cargo to get loaded up, a Brinks truck pulled up 
with uh, two guards and they pulled out the back a pallet and the, the pallets that we use is a five by seven metal pallet and this uh, was stacked about three feet high on this pallet all the way around uh, shrink wrapped cash <laughs> and the the first thing that i thought that was uh, uh, kind of interesting about that it was just uh, two old guards that were standing there with 12 million dollars <laughs> And the chain link fence, exactly, (laughs) the chain link fence that was separating us from, um, you know, outside Miami was only about 30 feet away. (laughs) I I was a little bit hesitant about walking around the plane. And then um, I asked the captain what he thought and he was go ask him. And and I thought to go take a picture of the uh, 20 or 12 million dollars. Turns out the guard took the camera from me and said, go sit on it. I'll take a picture of you. Sitting on the twelve million dollars. So somewhere in some digital file, I've got a picture of me sitting, you know, on twelve million dollars worth of uh, worth of uh, cold hard, good old American currency. Now I, I just have to ask at this point: you guys had a flight plan to fly from Miami to Panama City, correct? Okay. Did it cross your mind as you took off? Well, maybe we could just divert this cargo somewhere else. Well. It's about a two, two and a half hour flight down there, and it was after dark at night, and there wasn't very much to look at, because uh, although the stars were pretty, and sometimes we run out of things to talk about, but not on that trip. <laughs> Unfortunately, the way that they had st- intentionally loaded, or mm. maybe fortunately, the way mm. that they had intentionally loaded the aircraft, the uh, cash was packed all the way into the back, and there were 11 other pallets completely full of the normal cargo that we hauled down to Panama between us in the cockpit and the cash. And there was actually no way for us to get to it from within the airplane. Well, but, but I'm thinking, couldn't you find a little strip somewhere in Nicaragua to put down? That that crossed our mind, too. <laughs> Believe me, and we flew the, uh, we fly the exact uh, type of aircraft that D.B. Cooper allegedly hijacked, the Boeing 727. So we came up with all kinds of D.B. Cooper type of things of trying to, to get to the back and uh, dump it out of the air stair. But alas, your honesty prevail yes yes of course it was just a way for us to amuse ourselves um before we got to panama and one of the con- things we came up with was uh to steal the airplane and fly it to colombia but then we thought how long would three gringos with a uh, stolen <laughs> well, aircraft yeah, and 12 million dollars right yeah in cash last there um what really got interesting is when we landed in panama yeah what kind, uh, of, what kind of reception committee did you have I, I had never seen so many scary, large-looking men with guns pointed towards me. As soon as we landed and pulled up to the cargo terminal, this was about 3 o'clock in the morning, in Panama, we were immediately surrounded by four Jeeps, two armored cars, and about 20 uh, 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 very scary-looking men with really big rifles. They completely surrounded the aircraft, mm-hmm. would not let anybody near it except for the small pre-approved crew that loaded and unloaded the aircraft and uh as soon as the cash came off the aircraft it it was put in one of the two cars and they jumped onto the jeeps and sped away needless to say i did not exit the aircraft and ask for my picture to be taken with any of them i stayed in the cockpit i sort of get the idea you know talking about victor boot and how they were basically using the same serial numbers for various aircraft they would register them in liberia which apparently has just as lax a registration for aircraft as it does for like these limping freighters that are always like going aground yes talk about that a little bit i you know got a private pilot's license here it seems all very regimented all very you know by the book 
But apparently in, in the international uh, flights that go on, uh, there's some laxity. There is some laxity, unless you're, you're talking about a flight to or from the United States. But uh, uh, around the Caribbean uh, us and uh, uh, Central America and parts of South America where I have flown, um, sometimes it's uh, you just show up and you're there. Uh, often just me wearing my pilot's uniform completely eliminated the need for, for passports or security. <laughs> The first time I was in a small little Caribbean island and I tried to get back out to the airplane to go through the actual metal detector, I started taking off my, my flashlight from my belt and some of the uh, items that I've had on me that were metal. The security guard looked at me and said, are you, are you going to sabotage your own airplane? And I looked at him and said, no. He said, well, why are you taking that off then? <laughs> yeah, that's a really valid point. And <laughs> for the next six months, I just brazenly walked through the metal detector with it beeping and mowing, and I would not even you know, break stride, just walk right out to my airplane. They get a little overboard sometimes here, but I guess the other extreme is not so reassuring either. No, no, it isn't. Well, I, I got to ask you a, a little bit about these... these what do they call these these Russian aircraft? The that, Antonov. The Antonovs. I, I I was reading about what Victor Boot flying these things around uh, the world, and I so, took a look at them on the web. The size of these aircraft. These things are like humongous. They're bigger than seven forty sevens. They they are huge. Some of my uh, coworkers who uh, worked in the Air Force, they uh, they call them the uh, C five skis. <laughs> It seems that uh, Russians reverse engineered a lot of aircraft, and if you can look at them, and it's a, it's it's a, even a 747 ski or a, a C-17 ski. But the Antonov is a very very huge aircraft, and I've seen it uh, several places around North America uh, on charters also. People are familiar with, I think, from Travis and all the air bases we have here in this, this general area, how big some of these things are. But the idea of getting a craft like that to some airstrip in the middle of nowhere in Central America or Africa, I mean. Do they have? They must have some really large strips, or else these planes can really take a lot of abuse. It's it's a little of both. Some of the strips in in uh, Africa and whatnot were built uh, a large concrete strip. Um, also, the uh, Antonov and the entire Russian design of aircraft was to to operate in harsh conditions, and it's a very well built aircraft that has a lot of uh, lifting capacity and does not need as large of a strip as as you would normally think. There was a tale in the book Merchant of Death by, by Stephen Braun. We interviewed uh, Mr. Braun some while back. He, they were describing how he, Boot got the contract to get Joseph Mobutu or Mobutu Sese Seko out of Zaire. Mm -hmm. And apparently, according to the story, they got a lot of his people on board, I guess the people they wanted to get on board, and they left a few guards behind to serve as a deterrent to, their, to the people that were closing in on them. And when they realized they were going to be left behind, they opened fire on the <laughs> aircraft, which then went rocketing down this pockmarked runway, and the guys on board were very admiring of the Russian technology, saying, gee, you know, we'd have never gotten off the ground in a 747. And you have to remember also, Doug, that in, in, in the type of operation that this is in, the aircraft coming in full and heavy, and uh, when it leaves, it's uh, leaving uh, with only half of its fuel and uh, ideally empty. 
Um, so it does not need as, as, as uh, long of a runway as, a, let's say, a fully loaded 747 would need. I mean, how long runway are we talking about? Like, Mather, Mather Field is like, in Sacramento, it's a military field. It's like about about a mile and a half long, I guess. Oh, uh, longer. It's about, it's over 12,000 feet. Okay, so two miles long. I've seen the Antonov down in Caracas, Venezuela, which, if memory serves me, is only about a 10,000-foot strip. Mm-hmm. But it is at sea level. I've also seen that plane in Denver. Also, 5,000 feet above sea level, and, and those, all of those runways are 12,000 feet. And I've also seen it up in Calgary. That's a lot of runway, though. People don't realize that that's a, quite a bit of it's asphalt. Or over two miles. Yeah. 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 The, uh, the Sacramento uh, uh, airport runways, I think, are uh, flowing around uh, eight or 9,000 feet. But a 747 can, can, um, can handle that, too. Okay. So, but it is a very uh, tough-built aircraft, and it was built to do exactly that. Drop now, lots of equipment into uh, unimproved strips, you, not at Heathrow. Yeah, you, you've flown though. You've flown up in, in Alaska. You've flown a lot of places in Central America, and I'm sure you know a lot of people in the industry who hire out. Do you know anybody that's gotten involved in some of this stuff over in uh, Africa and the like? There's uh, there's several people that uh, that I work with or have worked with uh, over the years. That um, after a few beers, they'll start telling stories of. Uh, and we kind of called it Brand X or in my previous life, previous companies. Uh, some of them worked uh, worked in Africa and uh, in the Middle East uh, back in the uh, 80s and 90s. And, and they have got uh, they've had some interesting stories that they'll start tell, telling after a few beers. And they start telling you how much money they're earning because I imagine it's fairly lucrative. I don't know how uh, specifically the numbers of how lucrative it was, but uh, I'm sure they earned it as uh, one of uh, my uh, former co-workers who at the time was working as an engineer and a flight mechanic for one of these outfits uh, told me a story that made me think that yeah they earned their money okay uh he was telling a story about how he he got to a after they landed somewhere on the african continent he had to call uh, uh the director of maintenance back in the united states and ask him a technical question concerning the number three engine mm-hmm. on uh, their aircraft and the question was uh how do i get an unexploded missile out of the end of it <laughs> well how do you do a thing like that I believe, uh, if I remember correctly, they removed the entire engine and left it there. Yeah. <laughs> you, you don't need that engine to fly home. Well, you got any, you got any bush pilot stories up in Alaska? I know that that's a kind of a, a rough and ready place. Yeah, that was uh, that was uh, interesting flying. Um, the type of flying that I did up uh, in Alaska, it wasn't uh, so much hauling tourists around. It was uh, supplying... Uh, everything to the uh, villages in western Alaska. Anything that you could not find on the tundra, you ha- it had to be flown in to most of these villages. The uh, most bizarre combination of cargo that I ever carried was actually to the village of Quinnahawk one summer, and it's right on the, uh, right on the edge of the uh, Chugach Sea. Part of the the Bering uh, Sea, okay, and uh, it was in a uh, Cessna caravan, which could which could haul quite a bit of uh, cargo. I carried a brand new washing machine still in the box, mm-hmm. two thousand pounds of soda pop, and a dead body in a coffin. <laughs> Someone wanted to return home to be buried in his native it's, village. It's a common thing. We carried a lot of HR human remains uh, up there. And the entire village turned out, the, the little dirt strip was about a quarter mile, half a mile away from the village. The entire village turned out to take the dead, uh, the dead body. 
off and in this little cardboard uh, casket. And because the way it was situated in the airplane, I kind of had to push the the uh, washing machine out first. And then I pushed the uh, helped them uh, push the coffin out onto the back of a pickup truck and I turned around to go back into the airplane to grab the you know these 63 pound packs of soda pop that made up the 2,000 pounds rest of the cargo when I turned around everybody was gone because they were off hauling the, the the body back so I had to just dump the, the coca-cola on the side of the uh, strip there and uh, you had to unload pallets yourself well, in we called them triple mailers up there. It was uh, three flats bounded together. It was how the uh, soda pop was uh, hauled around, and each uh, triple mailer uh, weighed exactly 63 pounds, and they were uh, bounded together with the plastic binding. So you must have got quite a workout. Uh, we did. We did. It was. Uh, that's why flying up there is a young man's uh, job because. <laughs> When you're 25 and it's 30 degrees below zero Fahrenheit, and to give you a perspective of that, 30 degrees below zero Fahrenheit means that water froze like 70 degrees ago. <laughs> and you're at the edge of the Bering Sea in the dead of winter, and you're unloading 2,000 pounds of soda pop. When you're 25, that seems like an yeah. adventure, but yeah. not so a lot much less anymore. fun when you get older, yeah. There's one nice thing I could point out that... And negative 40 is Celsius and Fahrenheit. It, it is indeed. And that was just kind of, that was a, a, a reason in the dead of winter to celebrate. <laughs> it was this human range thing. Was that, that's pretty common? Your carton, you yeah, said about, it's pretty about, common. Uh, once, once a month or so, we would have uh, that. Now, when we were flying the smaller aircraft, the Cessna 207, if the seats are taken out, a regular casket can fit exactly in the back. Uh, um, right behind the pilot seat, and then we would strap it down with with nets, and then you fly it off to whatever village you go to by yourself. And believe me, as you're flying, even though if, if it's a short flight, 25, 30 minutes, or an hour, hour and a half, every horror movie you've ever, <laughs> ever watched replays in your head. You hear a... As the coffin door, we had we had one Joker up there who was a brand new guy, and he thought of a really really fun prank. He was going to get one of these cheap cardboard coffins that the human remains are hauled around in, and he was going to get in it and have have it flown to somebody else. Now, mind you, the 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 coffin is completely strapped down with cargo netting, and he was just going to be just stick his hand out and grab the pilot by the leg after they've taken off. And I asked him, are you That's completely insane? Idea. You want to scare to death the pilot while you're actually strapped into the back in, in a coffin. So we kind of nixed the plan. On his, and you, he, you talked him out of that one. He, when, I, when, I, when I explained it to him that way, he realized the folly of, of pre-coffining yourself in an aircraft and scaring to death the pilot. <laughs> Well, we're kind of short on time. I guess uh, let's let's go out maybe with comparing. I know you you fly this cargo around. A lot of people do, and and that probably has advantages and disadvantages. One would imagine to flying passengers. Uh, I enjoy uh, flying cargo much better uh, simply because you don't have to deal with oh the passengers, or with flight attendants, or as we like to say, uh, them boxes don't complain about nothing. Well, you got a final juicy story about maybe the most odd thing you've ever flown. Well, this didn't happen to me, fortunately, but one of our crews was uh, carrying uh, a load of uh, lab mice in the in the belly of the aircraft, and apparently the mice got loose <laughs> over the course of a two-hour flight. Uh, the mice started popping up in the cockpit, 
And from the stories that we... You know, a lot, a lot of people don't don't enjoy rodents. No, 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 they don't. Particularly if you're just sitting there at 35,000 feet and something's crawling over your shoulder and you look over. The story is that the, the en engineer at the time was uh, a small guy who was fairly tough, a bodybuilder. And when the captain, the engineer, turned around, he was standing on his seat... <laughs> with his oxygen mask on for some reason, screaming into it as two or three mice were just scurrying around the cockpit floor. sounds like a cartoon. We the eek a mouse cartoon. We still have not let him hear the end of that one. <laughs> well, Vlado, I knew, I knew you'd have some good stories. Thank you very much for inviting me. All right. Well, come come again soon. Let's talk Let's talk about aviation. You have, you've, you've been falling down the duty as our aviation correspondent by flying around all over the world. I have been busy. I've, I've got to go get the stories before I can tell them. All right.